Hey, y'all, we're rerunning two episodes today. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers a little bit more about history every day. The day was January 24th, 1925. On this day, Maria Tallchief was born Elizabeth Marie Tallchief in Fairfax, Oklahoma, on the Osage Nation Reservation. The doctors used their forceps improperly and left a red mark on her forehead. At least that's what Maria said later. But other than that, baby Maria was healthy, and it wouldn't be long before Maria would start taking ballet lessons and begin her path toward ballet stardom. Maria's father, Alexander Joseph Tallchief, was a full-blooded Osage and a big-time real estate executive. Her mother, Ruth Tallchief, had Irish, Scottish, and Dutch roots. At the time, the Osage were the wealthiest tribe in the U.S., since they had discovered oil in their land and everyone held mineral rights. But even though they were well-off financially, life wasn't perfect. Maria's father had a drinking problem, which often led him to argue with Maria's mother. And the Osage were still subject to cultural persecution by the federal government. In 1884, the U.S. officially banned what they called pagan ceremonies and began imprisoning and even killing American Indians who took part in tribal religious ceremonies. Throughout the late 1800s and early 1900s, the government continued to enforce laws outlawing Native American traditions. But Maria's grandmother, Eliza Big Heart Tallchief, still snuck Maria and her younger sister, Marjorie, into secret tribal ceremonies when they were children. Maria was fascinated by the ornate outfits, dancing, and songs at these powwows, and that stuck with her. When she was three, she went to her first ballet lesson in the basement of the Broadmoor Hotel in Colorado Springs. And by the time she was five, Maria's ballet teacher already had her dancing on point, which is actually super dangerous for such a young child whose feet are still growing. Maria also started piano lessons when she was young, and her mother really wanted her to be a concert pianist, but Maria was drawn to ballet. When Betty Marie, as her family called her, was eight years old, the family moved to Beverly Hills, California. Ruth had felt like the reservation lacked opportunities for the girls, so she took them somewhere she thought they'd be able to reach their full potential. And Maria did thrive in California. Under the guidance of famed dancer and choreographer Ernest Belcher, Maria and her sister learned everything from ballet to acrobatics to tap dance. Ruth, excited to get her daughters out on the stage, even made them do cringeworthy Native American dances that were way too contrived to really be called tribal. Fortunately, Maria moved on to bigger and better things. In 1938, Maria and her sister began studying under choreographer David Lachine, his prima ballerina wife Tatiana Rybalshinska, and Branislava Nijinska, a notable ballet teacher and choreographer. Nijinska was a tough teacher and pushed her students to be dancers at all times, not just when they were practicing or performing. Nijinska recognized Maria's talent and dedication and cast Maria in her ballet, Chopin Concerto, which was performed at the Hollywood Bowl in 1940. Maria graduated from Beverly Hills High School in 1942 and hit the ground running with her dancing career. She got a job as an extra in the film Presenting Lily Mars, which starred performance big shot Judy Garland. And soon after, 
she earned a spot at Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, which was a major ballet company at the time. While she was performing with Ballet Russe, she went from Betty Marie to Maria Talchief. She was already spelling her last name as one word, but taking the first name Maria helped appease her colleagues who thought a more Russian-sounding name would make her more palatable to the masses. And from here, Maria's ballet career is pretty much a laundry list of accomplishments. She went from the corps de ballet to solo parts. And Russian choreographer George Balanchine, who's been dubbed the father of American ballet, played a major role in Maria's glow up. That's because he really helped her sharpen her dancing skills. You could cue the mentor-student montage here. After George joined Ballet Russe in 1944 as a ballet master, he saw just how talented Maria was and took her under his wing. And they went back to basics so she could build a strong foundation. He helped her master the turnout, or when ballet dancers rotate their legs outward so the toes point away from each other. He trained her to become stronger. He just really helped her embody the art of ballet. Maria even once said that she didn't fully understand ballet until George came around. And soon enough, their professional relationship turned into a romantic one, too. Balanchine proposed to her, and she gave him a kind of unenthusiastic yes. And in 1946, they got married when she was 21 and he was 42 years old. The marriage didn't last too long, only around six years. That lack of enthusiasm had turned out to be a general mood of their romantic relationship. But while they were together and after, they collaborated a ton. They went to France and Maria made her debut at the Paris Opera Ballet in 1947. And in 1948, Maria joined Balanchine's new company, the New York City Ballet, and was prima ballerina there until 1965. Maria rose to the top of the ballet world with her starring role in The Firebird at the New York City Ballet, her performance as a sugar plum fairy in a version of Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker, and a bunch of other roles that showcase Maria's technical skill and passion. She toured Europe and Asia, performed with other ballet companies, and even played Russian ballerina Anna Pavlova in the 1953 film Million Dollar Mermaid. Maria was always involved in the ballet world in some way, even after she retired from dancing and settled down with her husband, Henry, and their daughter, Elise Maria, in Chicago. She went on to become the director of ballet at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. She also founded the Chicago City Ballet and served as its artistic director from 1981 until it shut down in 1987. By the time Maria Tallchief died in 2013, she had left a huge impact on ballet around the world and helped put American ballet on the world stage. A pioneering dancer and teacher who always embraced her lineage, Maria has become known as America's first major prima ballerina. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know more about history today than you did yesterday. If you want to know more about Maria Tallchief, you can listen to the November 3rd, 2014 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class called Maria Tallchief. You can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to producer Chandler Mays for all his audio work. Tune in tomorrow for another day in history. Hello, hello again. I'm Eves, and you're listening to This Day in History class, where we examine the past from the present.
The day was January 24, 1935. Canned beer hit the shelves for the first time when Kruger's Finest Beer and Kruger's Cream Ale went on sale. Beer is an alcoholic beverage made from the fermentation of grain. Historical evidence supports the existence of beer 7,000 years ago, but it could be older than that. Beer was popular in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and other places in the ancient world. Ancient Greeks and Romans preferred wine over beer, but beer production spread throughout Europe in ancient and medieval times, when brewing and baking were closely related tasks. So people have been figuring out ways to serve and store beer for a long time. In its early days, beer was served in buckets, sacks, jars, and other vessels. It was often drunk just after fermentation, before it spoiled. Glass bottles were first produced sometime around the first century BCE, but they were a luxury throughout the Middle Ages. Brewers began putting beer in hand-blown glass bottles in England in the late 1500s, but the bottle often exploded from the carbon dioxide pressure inside, and not everyone accepted drinking beer out of a bottle versus a cask. On top of that, bottles were expensive and had to be filled and corked by hand. Over on the North and South American continents, Native Americans brewed beer using corn before Europeans even arrived. Early colonists began making beer, and by the early 1800s, the number of breweries in the U.S. had grown significantly, but consumption of commercially brewed beer was still moderate. But by the second half of the century, German immigrants were bringing new brewing methods to the U.S., and breweries proliferated. Higher wages, better technology, and urbanization also contributed to this rise in production. In 1866, the chilled iron mold was invented, and it made production cheaper and faster. In 1873, Carl von Linde, working for the Spaten Brewery in Munich, invented mechanical refrigeration. This allowed for year-round brewing and made colder processed lager beers more available. In 1879, an English man named Henry Barrett invented the screw-top beer bottle. Pasteurization caught on in beer production so that bottled beers could be stored longer and shipped farther. And in 1900, Michael Joseph Owens invented the first automated glass bottle manufacturing machine. By the early 1900s, bottled beer was taking off. But glass bottles were heavy and expensive, and they weren't the easiest to stack and ship. People also paid deposits on bottles, which could be returned for a refund. Many of the returned bottles were unusable, adding to the cost of the whole operation. Plus, brewers were sending their beer farther distances, and they wanted to cut costs. By this time, cans were already being used for food distribution. Cans did not weigh as much as bottles and were cheap. That said, the metal would react with the beer to affect its taste, and cans had to be able to contain the pressure of carbonated beer. The American Can Company started trying to can beer around 1909, but Prohibition made the production and distribution of alcoholic beverages illegal. Prohibition was repealed in late 1933. By then, the American Can Company had engineered a can that solved the metallic taste and pressure problems. Initial tests with canned Paps beer went well, but the product had to be tried out in a market. 
The American Can Company approached the Gottfried Kruger Brewing Company in Newark, New Jersey, and offered to build them a canning line and pay for the first test batches. 2,000 cans of 3.2% alcohol by volume Kruger beer was delivered to faithful Kruger drinkers, who were overwhelmingly happy with the canned beer. On January 24, 1935, Kruger's Cream Ale and Kruger's Finest Beer became the first beers sold to the general public in cans. Competitors soon began selling canned beer, and its popularity grew throughout the 1930s and after World War II. The first cans were flat-topped and had to be opened with a church key. Then came cone-top cans that could be closed with crown caps, then pull-tab tops, then stay-tab tops by 1975. As beer cans went through more reinventions, they caught on with more consumers and brewing companies. The Kruger Brewing Company shut down in 1961, pushed out of the market by companies like Anheuser-Busch. The Kruger label was then sold to another brewing company. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do so at T-D-I-H-C podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Or if you would prefer to email us, you can send us a message at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks for listening. I hope to see you here again tomorrow.